Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 20th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Last week, Science and the City hosted the sold-out Science of Taste event. Renowned food writer Harold McGee and smell and taste researcher Linda Bardashuk teamed up to tackle everything about our tongues. In this week's podcast, you'll hear a mixture of the event's program, as well as selections from interviews with McGee and Bardashuk. This podcast is brought to you by Miracle Fruit Man, your source for miracle fruit, the tiny berry that changes sour taste to sweet right in your mouth. Use them to enhance everyday flavors, lose weight, simulate sweet taste that's safe for diabetics, jazz up restaurant menus, or throw your own Miracle Fruit party. Find more information and get yours today at MiracleFruitMan.com. Think back to that high school textbook diagram of the tongue. You had your sweet taste buds on the front, salty and sour taste buds on the side, and bitter at the back. Now, forget everything you learned. Linda Bartoshuk is a smell and taste researcher at the University of Florida, and the tongue map is one of her favorite taste myths to bust. This is my very favorite taste myth. Have you ever seen in uh, a book the uh, picture of the tongue map? In fact, it's in lots of books, and it's a lot of papers by very impressive scientists who want to know better. It's totally bogus. (laughs) It's based on a mistranslation of a German thesis of Hennig done in the lab of Wilhelm Wundt in Leipzig in 1901, and I love it. I spent 35 years at Yale, and the mistranslation was done by a Harvard (laughs) professor. The tongue is divided into different anatomical areas, but based on the kinds of anatomical structures. The part of the tongue you can wiggle, in in textbooks you always find that described as the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, but it's the kind you can, part you can stick out, and the posterior one-third is the part that's hooked on. The anterior part of the tongue, the part that wiggles, has structures on it called fungiform papillae. Now, fungiform means they're shaped like button mushrooms. And if you were to look at them under high magnification, there they sit, round with a little stalk. And in that round mushroom top, there are buried taste buds. They look like little oranges buried in this mushroom. And they communicate through a central core. So you have this series of cells, and the cells all taper to a fine microvillus, and then these microvilli, some of them, protrude up into the core, it's called the taste pore, and that's how solutions come washing across your tongue. They flow into that taste pore, that's why you can only taste something if it's in liquid form, and there they come into contact with these little extensions of cells, and these extensions of cells have taste receptors, and that's how we taste. Harold McGee is a food columnist for the New York Times and also author of the ultimate food Bible called On Food and Cooking. When it comes to establishing how we taste, McGee says straightening out exactly what taste is is an important first step. It's a little confusing because we use the the word taste in a couple of different ways. One is, strictly speaking, the things that we sense on our tongue. And then the other one is just the taste of a food, which is its kind of overall impression. So you have to distinguish between the two. That latter one, the uh, sort of general idea of taste, that involves both taste and smell. The taste of a strawberry is a combination of the two. But taste, strictly speaking, is molecules that we can detect with the receptors on our tongue. 
and they're very different from the molecules we, we can smell. They're, for one thing, water-soluble rather than oil-soluble, and very small molecules, and also, for the most part, nutrients, or somehow associated with nutrients, or with things that aren't good for us, like toxins. So smell is, I kind of think of flavor, uh, that, that general sense of taste, as being composed of taste, strictly speaking, on the tongue, which is kind of the foundation, and then built upon that or riding on top of that is the superstructure, which are the aromas, which are much more variable, which are much more kind of transient. They kind of come and go. But what's on our tongue is sitting there and having its effect constantly. When it comes to smell and taste, what McGee is talking about is a combination of olfaction, breathing smells into our nose like we do when we smell a flower, and retronasal olfaction, the smelling we do when we're eating and aromas from inside our mouth are pushed into our nasal cavity. While this may seem like the same thing, Bartoshuk says the brain definitely knows the difference. The fact is, when you sniff, the brain knows you're sniffing, and it sends the olfactory information to one part of the brain. When you're chewing and swallowing and tasting food in your mouth, the brain knows that the odor is coming in a different way and sends exactly the same stimulation to a different part of the brain, and the rules of processing are not the same. Taste interacts with retronasal but not orthonasal olfaction. Though smell plays a critical role in our flavor experience, the smell and taste systems are built very differently. Smells are learned while we're born liking and disliking certain tastes. As Bartoshuk explains, it's all for biological reasons. Salt identifies sodium. We're born liking salt. Well, let me correct that. The salt receptors are not completely mature in the human at birth. So they have to mature over a few weeks, and as soon as they mature, we like salt. Sweet identifies biologically useful sugars. We like sweet. Sour identifies acids that can burn. We dislike intense sourness, but would you believe especially children may like Lesser intense sourness, that's not understood. Bitter identifies poisons, we dislike bitter. Note that this is a true nutritional sense. Your affective reaction to the taste is protecting you and giving you nutritional information. Olfaction does not label nutrients. You look down here, I've got the nutrients, the macronutrients we get calories from, fat, carbohydrate, protein, the micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, and something I'm gonna call anti-nutrients, which are poison. The only sensory experience you get from those is taste. Carbohydrates, sugar is sweet. Vitamins, doesn't matter what they taste like because they're too dilute, except for vitamin C, to be noticed in food. Proteins, no taste, no smell. Fats, no taste, no smell. Minerals, yes, they're salty and bitter. Interestingly enough, um, there is a lot of room to confuse minerals, and this is sometimes terribly important. Anti-nutrients tend to be poison. Why? Well, evolution seems to have given us receptors to detect poisons. Now, this dance between biology and behavior is fascinating, and we find many cases in nature of where one species evolves a mechanism to take care of something else. Plants protect themselves by producing compounds that are bitter to animals. Interestingly enough, some of the plants with the best defenses against hungry animals are totally defenseless when it comes to humans oregano, thyme, and the array of other somewhat bitter spices that make up your seasoning rack are unbearably bitter to your average rabbit, say, but when we stir them into a sweet spaghetti sauce, it adds all sorts of interesting layers of flavor. Now, talking about our four flavor receptors begs the question, 
Is there a fifth taste? You've probably heard of umami, the taste commonly tied to proteins like meat, which contain high levels of glutamates. Scientists have battled over the legitimacy of umami, and much like McGee and Bartoshuk, can't really come to a consensus. The umami cabal is so powerful that I'm afraid to say that. If one of those people is out there, you'll probably follow me home. <laughs> Here's the deal with umami. Yes, it has a taste, but the receptors for glutamate are all through the GI tract. They're in the mouth, but they're also in the stomach. Fatty acids produce a little bit of a taste, but that's because, well, I'll tell you in a minute. But we also have those receptors in, in the, the gut. So the, the whole protein molecule is a strip of amino acids attached. The whole fat molecule is a bunch of fatty acids attached on a glycerol backbone. So what happens with digestion is the protein is broken up into its constituent amino acids, and the receptors for glutamate respond to only one of those. But that's all you need. You eat protein, it's broken up in your stomach. The glutamate receptors say, aha, protein came in here. It doesn't have to bind to the whole molecule, just that little tag, um, glutamate. And so your brain then says, wow, the properties that preceded that, the flavor, really told us something very important about our diet. It makes you like it better. You learn to like roast beef, eggs, tofu, if you're in, as I am. All the sources of protein you learn to like, and it is true, you can learn to like glutamate too, but one of the, the uh, tip-offs to why it's not a basic taste, a lot of people hate it. Glutamate is not a universally liked experience, and therefore it doesn't qualify as a basic taste in, in my view. I think it's a real taste. Linda makes the point that it's hard, to cons hard for her to consider it a basic taste because glutamate is an amino acid, Amino acids are parts of proteins, so it is nutritionally related. And all the other nutritionally related tastes are kind of automatic likes. You know, we just like them automatically, saltiness and sweetness in particular. With glutamate, it's different. You taste glutamate by itself, and it's not that pleasant. However, when it's mixed with other things, it can make those other things and the whole experience much nicer. And I've certainly had that experience, particularly in something like a steak, an aged steak, which uh, I, I had a wonderful tasting here in New York with uh, Jeffrey Steingarten, the food writer, and we tasted steaks that had been aged for different periods of time sequentially. Just platter after platter came out, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks, and we're, we're kind of eating and, and saying, it's nice, it's nice, it's nice, and we got to one and we Put, put the bite in our mouths, and we just looked at each other and, and said, is what's happening to you what's happening to me? And for both of us, our, our mouths were just exploding with flavor. And the only way I can explain that is that the protein breakdown had proceeded far enough that there really was a lot of glutamate there, and it just made all the difference. What age was it? It was a couple of months. It was much longer no than way. yeah, much longer than people commercially age beef. McGee has had more taste experiences than most of us in his career as a food guru, but one particular trip to Italy has stood out. A wonderful moment that happened a few years ago, at a meeting about taste and smell, at which the director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center attended. And he knows a lot about food and, and a lot about taste and smell, but he had never had the experience of sipping a little spoonful of olive oil just by itself, not putting it on a food or something like that. 
And the meeting was in Sicily, and one of the hosts had olive trees, and it was shortly after the harvest, so he brought some freshly pressed oil and shared it with the participants. The oil was cloudy and just you know, amazingly uh, concentrated in flavor. Gary Beecham is his name. Gary put this spoonful of oil in his mouth and immediately started coughing like crazy because it was so pungent and fresh. And he, his brain immediately made this connection. The only time I've had that kind of pungent reaction in the back of my throat, not in, in my mouth, but in the back of my throat, was when I was working on ibuprofen and how to make it more palatable. I wonder whether there's something in olive oil that has the same activity as ibuprofen because it's giving me the same chemical reaction on my receptors in the back of the throat. So he went back and uh, took him a couple of years to do the research because there's no funding for some shot in the dark of that. Turns out there is something very much like ibuprofen in olive oil and he detected it by taste. And that's probably part of the story of why it is that an olive oil-based diet is good for you, because it's like having a baby aspirin a day, but (laughs) from an olive instead of... That chemical was found to be present in sort of more highly processed olive oils as well? No. And the pungency is a really good uh, indicator of it, yeah. So, And it's interesting, I served on a tasting panel for olive oils with uh, European... American, uh, New Zealand, and Australian judges, and uh, there was a clear divergence of opinion. The, the Europeans, the more pungent the oil, the better. And for us, the more pungent, the more difficult it is to kind of get it down without coughing, and so it, it might taste great in other ways, but for us that was beyond a certain point, a defect. McGee's olive oil experience is interesting because, as Bartoshuk explains, pain suppression is a natural function of all food we eat. One of the, the core things that taste does that we're just beginning to understand turns off pain. And you can imagine if an animal's in pain, it might not want to eat. But in this case, if it eats, it's going to inhibit pain. Now, this is something that almost certainly is going on in humans. And we find some evidence of it when we do experiments. What's interesting is we don't seem to be consciously aware that we're eating for that reason. On the other hand, if you eat for emotional reasons, you have emotional pain. People who get depressed, some of them eat. So if you get on the web and just read people's blogs, you see people talk about eating for emotional pain. The truth is we eat for physical pain too, but we're not as aware of it. Or at least people don't talk about it. But every so often, someone really insightful will say, you know, eating doesn't just turn off my emotional pain. It turns off my sore arm or my... I had a root canal a few months ago. It didn't go well. And my dentist was unavailable. I had 24 hours before I could get any relief. And so I sat with this hideous pain, and I took a sweet, sour candy, and I just sat and slowly rubbed it back and forth across the front of my tongue. While I was rubbing it, the pain disappeared to zero. If if someone startled me or I moved, it would come back. But I actually got tremendous relief from doing that. And we're trying to capture that kind of anecdotal observation in the laboratory. But it's very difficult, because first of all, Nobody's real thrilled with having you inflict pain as part of an experiment. And when you do, it has to be such benign pain, like a little heat on your arm, that it doesn't really capture the essence of what pain is really like. Now, while on the subject of pain, some of the research Bartoshuk is doing focuses on people who've suffered from multiple ear infections, which have over time damaged their inner ear. It turns out 
that damaging the corded tympani releases inhibition on perceived touch. Fats are perceived through touch, creaminess. A history of ear infections intensifies fat sensations, making high-fat foods very palatable. And people with a history of ear infections slowly gain weight. And by the time they're in their 30s, the incidence of overweight and obesity among people with ear infections is almost double. But while ear infections may explain why some of us have a harder time saying no to haagen what about the rest of us? It turns out, says Bartoshuk, there's an explanation for us too. You have something nice and novel and then throw up. You're going to hate that flavor. How many of you have had that experience where you've gotten sick? Yeah, look around you. It's really common. And this is a conditioned food aversion, and nature does this so that if you survive poisoning the first time, you won't do it again. Of course, most of us tend to get sick, perhaps in not such dramatic circumstances, and our best data on this come from undergraduates who drink heavily for the first time. <laughs> you can pair a flavor with something good, even like mood elevation, and it will become additionally pleasant. But the real way to make a flavor uh, preferred Pair it with calories. Um, you think, isn't it ironic that um, all these things that have high calories taste so good? Uh-uh, went the other way around. It was the calories and the natural hardwired mechanisms that make us need calories that made those foods take on a good taste. This is why it's, it's amusing to me when people try to market a food that's low in calories. You think the brain doesn't catch on? You notice how often these foods fail in the marketplace? Remember that McDonald's hamburger, low-fat? How long? That lasts six months, maybe? The brain catches on. And it's not that you say, ooh, that doesn't have any calories. I don't like it. You make up excuses. Oh, it was kind of grainy. I didn't like that chocolate ice cream. It wasn't quite as good as Haagen-Dazs. And those things slowly get uh, taken out of the diet because the brain detects the difference between the one that has the calories and the one that doesn't. What we should be doing is figuring out how much we can reduce the calories before the brain catches on. McGee has seen some of this caloric testing, along with a selection of other crazy foods, in his visits to some of the most experimental restaurants in the world. The ultimate taste experience is something most chefs probably strive for, but some definitely a little more than others. Wiley Dufresne here in New York, I'm going to show several of his dishes, and his restaurant WD50 on Clinton Street is a great place to go regularly because he's always com coming up with, uh, with something new. He also wanted to intensify and, and concentrate uh, and kind of bring together the best of a chicken. And he was thinking about chicken McNuggets and how could you really make the ultimate chicken McNugget? Well, you take a piece of the breast meat and wrap around it a piece of the thigh meat and wrap around that an intact piece of the breast skin. And if you could somehow glue it all together, you'd have the perfect morsel of chicken. Well, there's something that in the restaurants is called meat glue, which is an enzyme called uh, transglutaminase. And it basically takes two proteins and joins them together. And so you take these pieces of protein and you push them together with a little bit of this powder, and they stick together and form a perfect little morsel. And that's chicken McNugget, or chicken nugget. And the ultimate shrimp experience, anybody? So Ferran Adriat wanted to intensify the flavor, the experience of a prawn. 
And he, he said, why do I have to choose between serving it raw or cooked, or with its juices or without its juices? I'm going to give you everything. So this is a pipette from the laboratory filled with a broth made by cooking down a bunch of prawns and concentrating it. And then uh, impaled on that pipette is a raw prawn, and then at the tip, a fried head of the prawn. So you put the whole thing in your mouth, squeeze the juice into your mouth, pull the things off with your teeth, and get everything all at once. This extreme flavor tripping, as it's called, is also an experience that can be induced using extras, if we can call them that. Take the miracle berry, for example. In the 1970s, Bartoshek did research on the little berry that people claimed turned all things sour to sweet tasting. It's indeed true that after eating a miracle berry, you can suck on a lemon enjoyably. And the science behind it, says Bartoshek, is simple. Tropical West Africa is the home of miracle fruit. And the reason I got interested in it so many years ago is I've always been interested in the concept of taste modifiers, the notion that somehow one taste can be turned into another. If that were true, it would be very theoretically important. It's actually not true at all. But miracle fruit was one of the things I came across because people claimed it was a sour suppressor or turned sour into sweet. Not at all. It turns out that what miracle fruit does, and I have a lovely picture of Lloyd Beidler's model of this back from the same era, it adds an intense sweet taste whenever acid enters the mouth, and that's all it does. So the reason the sour is suppressed is because of a phenomenon called mixture suppression, which I also spent several years studying. If you took a cup of acid and tasted it, it would be very sour. Now, if you dumped sugar in it, it would be both sweet and less sour. You put miracle fruit in your mouth, and it's sweet and less sour exactly as it would have been if you'd added sugar. So then, the, to sort of uh, settle the whole issue, I used a sweet inhibitor, Gymnema sylvester, and I gave people miracle fruit, measured how sweet the acid got and how sour it was, then gave them gymnema to block the sweet, and the acid popped right back up to its normal position. The audience at the Science of Taste event all got to sample the miracle fruit, a truly unique experience for science in the city. For more on the Science of Taste, check back in a couple of weeks for the video of the program produced by PBS. And I hope this week you got a new taste for, well, taste. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? There are a couple ways you can show your support. First, you could become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online at www.nias.org. Second, get your name and advertising in a Science in the City podcast by sponsoring one. For more information, email Adrian Burke at A-B-U-R-K-E at N-Y-A-S.org. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. Please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.